Hi again. Welcome back to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Last time, we followed Gustav Vasa's struggle for respectability. He hired people to advise him how to improve his court, he had everyone take etiquette lessons and dress in bright and practical clothes. He did manage to find a real princess to marry, and together they had a son, Eric. Unfortunately, Queen Catherine died young, and Gustav had to marry again. Twice, since also his second wife died young. Thanks to all these marriages, he had plenty of children, both sons who were tasked with running the kingdom, and daughters who could be married off to important people on the continent in order to strengthen Sweden's political position abroad. When Gustav Vasa eventually died in 1560, he was succeeded by his son Erik. This wasn't much of a surprise, since Gustav had made sure to abolish the election of kings and instead turned Sweden into a hereditary monarchy and his own family into the only one that could inherit the crown. Today, we'll follow Erik's early years as king, in parallel to the early years of the new king of Denmark, Frederick II, who just so happened to be Erik's first cousin. Episode 78, Kings, Cousins, Rivals. The last episode ended with the death of Gustav Vasa in 1560, and the ascension of his eldest son Erik to the Swedish throne. By coincidence, King Christian III of Denmark had died the year before, 1559, leaving the Danish throne to his son Frederick. Gustav and Christian had gotten along fairly well, and even cooperated in crushing the peasant rebellion led by Niels Dacke. They both shared a cautious outlook on foreign policy, and neither of the two kings had wanted to start a new Scandinavian war. Gustav Vasa had had enough of that sort of thing after the War of Independence in the 1520s, and Christian III had drawn a similar conclusion after he came out on top after the Count's Feud, the largest civil war in Danish history, in the 1530s. Their sons, on the other hand, were a completely different story. The two young kings were both hawkish and proud, nurturing dreams of greatness and glory. Frederick wanted to re-establish the Kalmar Union, and Eric wanted to break Denmark's dominating position in Scandinavia and instead establish Sweden as the leading power in Northern Europe. As I mentioned a minute ago, Frederick and Eric were actually first cousins, because their mothers, Dorothea and Catherine of Saxe-Lauenburg, were sisters. The mothers had actually been quite close as children, but the close family bond had withered when they were married off to two competing kingdoms, and then been broken off completely when Catherine died young, as we covered in the last episode. Dorothea's son ascended to the Danish throne in 1559 as Frederick II. When he was young, his father wanted him to gain some experience in governing and leadership, so Frederick was put in charge of Malmö's castle in Malmö. That way, the prince would be able to try his wings, but he would also just be across the Ersund Strait from Copenhagen if something went seriously wrong and his father would have to step in. It was a sensible plan, but I think it would be fair to say that Frederick didn't do the most of this opportunity. Instead of honing his skills as a leader and politician, the young prince spent most of his time on parties and hunts. He wasn't much for bookish pursuits, young Frederick. To be perfectly honest, he was considered a little dumb, not least because he never learned to read or write particularly well. So he never really learned the art of statesmanship, and his education was patchy at best. But he was pleasant and intelligent. He knew how to make friends and work a room. Basically, everyone who met him liked him. 
and that can be quite a useful skill to have when you're playing the game of international diplomacy. When Frederick inherited the crown in January 1559, he also inherited his father's council of the realm, 24 senior noblemen who more or less could run the country whoever was on the throne. That came in handy in the beginning when Frederick II was more or less clueless about how to govern a country, but the new king wasn't going to let his father's old guard run the place forever. Already within a few months of taking over their king, Frederick participated in a war against Dietmarschen. You may remember that a similar campaign had ended in disaster for his great-uncle, King John, but Frederick didn't care, and he didn't listen to the council when they cautioned against the whole thing. Luckily for Frederick, the war was swift and successful, and when he returned home, the conquering hero, his self-confidence was strengthened. That weakened his willingness to listen to the old hands on the council with all their boring advice about caution and prudence. Less than a year after Frederick II became king, his Swedish cousin Erik inherited the Swedish crown when Gustav Vasa kicked the bucket. The new Swedish king became known as Erik XIV, based on a history of Sweden penned by the country's last Catholic archbishop, Johannes Magnus. This chronicle, written by Johannes Magnus in exile in Rome, was peppered with a long list of more or less fictitious kings that was supposed to give the impression that Sweden had a far more ancient and glorious past than it really had. In reality, there hadn't been 13 Swedish kings by the name of Eric before Gustav Vasa's son took the throne. At the very best, there had been eight. In fact, not even according to Johannes Magnus's count, Eric should have been number 14, but only 13, since the archbishop didn't count Eric Magnusson, who we met in episode 51, One King, Two Crowns, focusing on his father, the unfortunate Magnus Eriksson, who St. Bridget slandered with such gusto. Anyway, Eric didn't let such petty details as historical accuracy get in the way, and styled himself as Eric XIV implying a long history for a kingdom in need of some legitimacy in the form of ancient roots. Eric was a real Renaissance prince, learned in history, architecture, literature, law, theology, languages, politics, economics, and astrology. He also took a keen interest in the running of the kingdom. He kept a close eye on all current issues, and he kept a diary in Latin. He knew what a prince was supposed to do, and he was happy to play the part. As king, he reformed the army and the fleet. He invested in roads, mining and weapons manufacturing because he felt it was far too easy for Sweden's enemies to encircle and isolate her, so the country needed to be self-sufficient. He did not, however, think Sweden needed to be self-sufficient in terms of government. Eric XIV didn't trust the Swedish nobility and made a point of employing foreigners and commoners with no power base of their own to run the bureaucracy, totally dependent on the king. Unfortunately, he lacked his cousin Frederick's ability to appeal to people. Instead, Eric was awkward and thin-skinned, suspicious of everyone, bordering on paranoid, and quick to take offense. He had also inherited the infamous Vasa temper, as we've already seen in the incident at Vastena, where his sister Cecilia and her paramour got to taste his wrath. One of the things that irked Eric XIV about his cousin Frederick II was that the Danish king was still sporting the three crowns, the heraldic symbol of Sweden, in his coat of arms. His ancestors had done so because during the Kalmar Union era, they had been kings of Sweden, so then it had been okay. But now Sweden was independent, and the continued Danish use of the Swedish symbol was seen as an act of aggression, a blatant claim to the Swedish crown. 
it didn't help that King Eric was really into heraldry, making the whole affair personal and extra infected. This wasn't the only example of Eric getting upset about misuse of heraldry. He once had a servant sentenced to death for crimes against the crown because he'd painted the three crowns upside down on a door in Stockholm. Already when Gustav Vasa was still king, Eric had advised his father to start a war with Denmark if they didn't drop the three crowns. The Danish use of the Swedish symbol had annoyed Gustav Vasa as well, but since he had a sense of proportions that his son and heir lacked, the conflict hadn't been allowed to escalate as long as Gustav was still alive. But now Eric was king, and he felt his and Sweden's honor was at stake. At his coronation, he retaliated against the Danes by adding the traditional heraldic symbols of Denmark and Norway, three blue leopards and an axe-wielding lion, respectively, to his own coat of arms. King Frederick wasn't amused, and he sent an official emissary to Eric, asking him to stop using Frederick's cats. Eric, of course, refused. Tension was getting higher, and it was becoming increasingly clear that the two young crown cousins didn't share their father's restraint, or their distaste for another Scandinavian war. And in the years after Frederick and Eric took over their respective thrones, Denmark and Sweden kept sliding closer and closer to open conflict. In the end, though, the heraldry spat wasn't the reason for the war, but the quarrel over the symbols made it easier to justify the conflict and to vilify the enemy. What ignited the spark was the situation in the Baltics, where the continued disintegration of the Teutonic Order was proving too tempting for Eric and Frederick not to get involved. Already in 1560, soon after his successful conquest of Dietmarschen, Frederick II oversaw the Danish conquest of the island of Ursel, off the coast of Estonia. But when the Danes were getting ready to get even deeper into the dis disintegration of the Teutonic Order and carve out an even larger slice of the Baltics for themselves, King Eric of Sweden also intervened and botched Danish plans to take over all of Estonia. This move angered Frederick, who wasn't particularly happy about Swedish expansion in the Baltics in general, since he saw this as Denmark's sphere of influence. So the Danish king sent out feelers to the Russians, the Poles and the Hanseatic League with an offer to join Denmark in a war against Sweden. The Russians didn't bite, but the Poles did. Lübeck also agreed to join the anti-Swedish alliance. The leaders of Lübeck did so because they were upset that Erik had started to interfere with their trade in Russia and had violated their privileges in Sweden. In May, the first movements toward war started. King Eric had managed to secure the arrangement to marry Christina of Hesse, and now a convoy of Swedish ships were on the way to pick her up in Rostock. But the Swedish ships had a hidden agenda as well. They provoked the Danish fleet when they passed it, hoping to trigger a Danish attack, and therefore obtain a reason to declare war. It succeeded, and the Swedes not only got to look like the attacked party, but they also won the skirmish and could bring home 800 Danish prisoners, including the Admiral of the Fleet and his flagship Hercules. To make sure this wouldn't be an isolated clash, but really the beginning of a war, the Danish prisoners were ritually humiliated by having their heads shaved and being paraded through the streets of Stockholm while people jeered at them. The procession was led by a midget called Hercules, like the captured flagship, who was taunting the prisoners. Meanwhile, in Rostock, the Swedish ships were waiting to bring the king's bride back to Sweden. But she never showed up. The official explanation was that her dress wasn't ready. But in reality, her father didn't like to marry off his daughter to a country that was about to embark on a war with Denmark. 
The wedding plans were finally killed when the Danes handed over some letters that they had intercepted. These were letters from Eric XIV to Queen Elizabeth of England. Apparently, he hadn't listened to his father and he was still trying to convince Elizabeth to marry him. The Swedish king wrote that the proposal to Christina of Hesse was just a decoy and that the one he really wanted was the Queen of England. The letter made Christina's father just as furious as the Danes had hoped and he withdrew his consent for the marriage. Eric XIV had lost the chance to marry Christina of Hesse but at least he did get the war he'd always wanted. Even though the fighting had already started, war was only officially declared in Stockholm on August 13th, 1563. Representatives from Denmark and Lübeck had travelled to Sweden to formally convey their intention to start a war against Sweden. These formal declarations of war were important diplomatic ceremonies and legal documents, a part of the framework of acceptable warfare for many centuries. And King Eric didn't miss this opportunity to show himself from his most formalistic, status-obsessed and tone-deaf side. The Danish herald was allowed to read the declaration of war in the presence of King Eric at the castle, but the guy from Lübeck had to make do with City Hall. Since Eric was a king, he didn't want to receive the declaration of war from Lübeck directly because he thought it was beneath his dignity as a crowned monarch to listen to a missive from a mere city. That's why he was willing to let the Danish herald speak in his presence. After all, he was representing Eric's cousin, an equal, King Frederick of Denmark. That way, Eric came off as a stickler for protocol, technically correct but still insulting to the people of Lübeck and slightly ridiculous in the eyes of his own people. Eric in a nutshell, in other words. And the worst part was that his cousin Frederick didn't reciprocate the courtesy of Eric's listening to his declaration of war in person by going easy on the Swedes or anything like that. Instead, at the same time as the formal diplomatic side of things was taken care of in Stockholm, King Frederick and a Danish army crossed the border into Sweden and advanced up the west coast in the direction of Elfsborg Castle. Elfsborg Castle was situated at the point where the river Göta Elv met the sea. Here, Sweden had a narrow window directly to the North Sea, squeezed between Norway to the north and Denmark to the south. It's difficult to exaggerate the importance of this port to the Swedes, since it was the only harbour on the west coast. Any ship that wanted to leave or reach Sweden that didn't use this port had to sail through the Öresund Strait, and was therefore at the mercy of the Danes, who controlled that waterway. If the Danes took Elfsborg, and then were to implement a blockade, Sweden would soon run out of all kinds of things that couldn't be produced domestically, perhaps most crucially, salt and wine. Salt was obviously of crucial importance, because it was needed for food preservation. Conserving food with salt was extra important in an age where refrigeration hadn't been invented yet. So without salt, people wouldn't just suffer from bland food. They would soon starve. In that context, wine may seem like a luxury item that it would be relatively easy to live without. After all, it was only the uppermost echelons of Swedish society that would enjoy a glass of wine with their meals. But the importance of wine wasn't connected to fancy dinners, but rather to the church. Wine was an essential part of the liturgy during communion, and without communion wine, the Swedish people weren't going to be able to receive the blood of Christ, which in turn would mean spiritual starvation and, so they thought, 
serious consequences after death. The difficulty in obtaining wine had always been an issue for the church in Scandinavia, and at times clerics in this part of the world had even suggested to the Pope that they should be allowed to serve their congregants the blood of Christ in the form of beer or even milk instead. The answer from the Vatican had always been an emphatic no to all the suggested alternatives to wine, and even though Sweden was no longer a Catholic country, wine was still seen as a must for communion by the Swedish church. In other words, you'd be hard-pressed to overstate the importance of Elfsborg Castle to the Swedes. If the castle was to fall to the Danish forces, the only Swedish window to the west, the only port with independent access to the North Sea, would be slammed shut and Sweden and its economy would be in the hands of King Frederick. Unfortunately, for all the salt and wine lovers in Sweden, their king, Eric, wasn't paying attention to the Danish invasion. He was preoccupied with his younger half-brother, John, the Duke of Finland. The previously chummy atmosphere between Eric and John had evaporated when John had gone and married without his brother Eric's consent. To make matters worse, John had married a Polish princess, Catherine Jagalon. Poland was one of Sweden's rivals in the Baltic region, and a bond between John and Poland was a threat to Eric. At least that's the way Eric saw it. So the king decided to move against John before his brother would have the time to rebel against him. In June 1563, so just as the war with Denmark was heating up, Eric gathered the Riksdag and had them convict John of treason, condemning him to death. As soon as he had the legal side of things sorted, Eric sent troops to Finland where they laid siege to Turku Castle, where John and his new bride were busy enjoying marital bliss. Whatever Eric thought, John hadn't been preparing for a rebellion, and he was woefully unprepared for a siege. He soon had to give up, and he and his new wife were arrested and transported to Gripsholm Castle, where they were imprisoned. There, John and his wife Catherine were kept in total isolation. They weren't permitted to receive visitors or to communicate with the outside world in any way. Apart from that, they were treated well and lived comfortably inside the castle walls. At least as comfortably as you can when your brother has arrested you and isolated you for no apparent reason. But still, they were better off than the 30 or so closest members of their court in Turku. King Eric had them all executed. As all of this family drama was taking place, a Danish army of some 25,000 professional mercenaries marched northward from Halland toward Elfsborg Castle. They reached the Swedish window to the west in the beginning of September, and after only three days of bombardment and a six-hour assault on September 4th, the castle fell to the attackers. The window to the west had been slammed shut, and the Swedes were trapped in the Baltic Sea, right where King Frederick wanted them. Not only was this a military feat and a strategic victory of immense importance for the Danes, they also found plenty of loot in the conquered castle. When the war started, people living in the area surrounding Elfsborg had brought their gold, silver, salt and other valuables to the castle for safekeeping. They assumed that the invading Danish army would plunder the region thoroughly, as invading armies always did but they couldn't imagine that Elfsborg Castle would fall, so they had believed their treasures to be safe there. Just like the people who had lost all their salt and gold, King Eric was livid when he heard that Elfsborg Castle had fallen to the Danish invaders. The king blamed his commanders. They were incompetent, ignorant, lazy, or traitors, possibly all of the above. Obviously, it didn't occur to the king that his focus on sending troops to fight John in Finland and his general micromanaging had 
anything to do with the loss of Elfsborg. Eric decided that Sweden needed to go on the offensive and strike back at the Danes. And quickly. He assumed personal command of the armed forces and set out. His plan was to punch a new hole in the Danish wall, blocking Sweden from having access to the North Sea. He must have realized that it wasn't realistic to take back Elfsborg Castle, so he set his sights on a different and hopefully weaker target. The city of Halmstad, a port city roughly halfway between Malmö and Elfsborg Castle. Already on October 23rd, the Swedish army, under the command of the king himself, stood outside the walls of Halmstad. Erik and his troops had arrived fast, much faster than most people had expected. The city wasn't prepared for a prolonged siege, and the defenders were given the option to surrender, or else the Swedes would attack and take the city by storm. Halmstad was defended by only somewhere between 1,000 and 1,500 soldiers. They were faced with a task of enormous importance. They really needed to withstand the impending Swedish assault. If they didn't, King Frederick's plans would be ruined. Not only would Sweden regain a port with direct access to the North Sea and would thereby escape the Danish stranglehold, but if the Swedes managed to capture Halmstad, they would also cut off the army that was currently at Elfsborg Castle. Their road back to Denmark would be blocked, and they'd be stuck far from home in enemy territory. So the locals decided to take their chances. They refused the offer to surrender and instead blocked the city gates with earthen logs, hoping they'd be able to keep the Swedes out long enough for the Danish army to come and rescue them. Halmstad had been chosen as a target not only because it had a port, but also because it was relatively weak. There was no strong castle here that could defend the city against an attacking army. The Swedes should have been able to take the city relatively easily, as long as their military leadership had been competent. But the Swedish campaign wasn't managed particularly competently. King Erik had been in such a hurry to reach Halmstad that he and the bulk of the army had moved ahead, leaving the heavy artillery behind, struggling to advance along the poor roads. And without artillery, it would be tricky to take a walled city by storm, even a relatively poorly defended one like Halmstad. The fast-moving army hadn't taken enough provisions with it either, so their food supplies were also running low already after a few weeks. To make matters worse, the assault ladders that the Swedes had brought with them turned out to be too short, so they didn't reach all the way up the city walls. And when rumors reached the Swedish camp that the professional Danish army that had taken Elfsborg Castle was on the move southward toward Halmstad, the Swedes started to get worried. They needed to take the city now, or else they'd be in serious trouble. To buy some time, the Swedes tore down a bridge across the river north of the city to stop the Danish advance. The bulk of the Danish army did get stuck on the northern bank of the river, but King Frederick had himself ferried across, and then he managed to sneak into Halmstad. When the locals realized that the king himself had come to lead the defense of the city, their morale soared, and their resolve to resist the assault hardened even further. At the same time as Frederick took direct command of the defense of Halmstad, his cousin Erik was having a bit of a breakdown. He couldn't handle the stress brought on by the fact that his plans to take the city hadn't worked. He wasn't particularly good at thinking on his feet and adjusting to reality, so he panicked and withdrew back across the border to Småland. When the Swedish soldiers realized that the king had left them, their morale plummeted and soon the Swedish soldiers were deserting en masse, trying to find their way across the border and back home. At that point, it was clear to everyone that the siege had failed, 
and the people left in charge of the Swedish army started to withdraw after the king. The retreat soon descended into something that looked more like a chaotic flight than an orderly withdrawal, and the Danes didn't hesitate to exploit the situation. A Danish force chased after the fleeing Swedes and caught up with them already some 15 kilometers northeast of Halmstad, close to the village of Mared. There, the Swedes stopped to offer battle on the afternoon of November 9th. The retreating Swedish force was much larger than the Danish one. Only 4,500 Danes were chasing the 12,000 Swedes. But the Swedes were tired, scared and demoralized, not to mention that they weren't actually professional soldiers. Unlike the Danes, most of the Swedes didn't have much training or experience of warfare. The result of the battle was a resounding Danish victory. The battle at Mared could have crushed the Swedish army completely. But luckily for the Swedes, nightfall comes early in Scandinavia in November, so the Danes didn't have time to finish them off. Instead, the Swedes were able to sneak away under the cover of darkness and avoid a complete annihilation. But their escape came at a heavy price. They had to leave behind everything they couldn't move quickly, including most of their baggage and the cannon. As dawn broke on November 10th, and the Danish army realized that the Swedes were gone, they decided not to continue their pursuit of the fleeing Swedish forces. Instead, they gathered up all the loot left behind by the Swedes and went into winter quarter. When King Eric heard what had happened after he had left the army, he was furious. And the poor showing in the war so far wasn't the only thing that angered the King of Sweden. He had also been informed that the peasants along the Norwegian-Swedish border in the region north of Elfsborg Castle had reached an agreement about a so-called border peace. The Swedish peasants even went as far as to send an official letter to King Eric, saying war couldn't be fought in their region because they had a deal with the Norwegians. Completely unsurprisingly, Eric did not accept this deal. And at least this was something he shared with his Danish cousin. King Frederick was furious when he heard that the Norwegians had refused to do guard duty on the border, since they didn't recognize the war. Despite the anger of the two monarchs, this would not be the only border peace during this war. In 1564, peasants in the border region between Småland and Scania also made a similar deal. With time though, the border peace agreements would crumble under pressure from above, but as late as 1566, some peasants were punished for having warned their neighbors on the other side of the border of an impending attack. Anyway, to sum up, 1563 had not been a year that had gone King Eric's way. He can't have been particularly pleased about the development of the war as he celebrated Christmas in Stockholm with his whole family that year. That is, his whole family except his brother John and his Polish wife Catherine, who were still imprisoned at Gripsholm Castle. Their sisters had begged Eric to pardon their brother and his wife, but the king hadn't agreed. Instead, he had forbidden his family to even mention John's name. So one can imagine that the atmosphere probably was a bit awkward at that family gathering. Frederick II, on the other hand, had all the more reason to be optimistic as he was settling in to celebrate Christmas 1563. He had managed to sabotage his cousin Eric's attempts to marry Christina of Hesse. His army had captured Elfsborg Castle and thereby blocked Sweden's one and only direct access to the North Sea. The country was now at Denmark's mercy in terms of its trade contacts with the continent. 
and when the Swedes had made a poorly planned and amateurishly executed attempt at gaining an alternative port by taking Halmstad, the Danes hadn't only repelled the attack, they had crushed a large part of the Swedish army and taken its baggage train and most of its artillery. Denmark seemed poised to gain a quick and total victory against Sweden in this war. Frederick couldn't wait for the fighting season of 1564 to get going, so he'd be able to deal his cousin the last fatal blow. Who knew, perhaps the Danish triumph would be so total that it would lead to Sweden's collapse and the re-establishment of the Kalmar Union under Frederick's rule. Next time, we'll see what came of Frederick's high hopes when our story of this conflict between the cousins continues. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, why not spread the word wherever you congregate with others who are also into Scandinavian history? Also, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you can rate podcasts nowadays. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to support the show. Another good way to support the show is to purchase some Scandinavian history-themed merch in the Scandinavian History Podcast webshop. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Hovamol, accredited to the King of the Gods. You can get t-shirts, mugs, tote bags, and many other items with nuggets of Scandinavian wisdom, such as wake up early if you want another man's land or life, only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies, or speak useful words, or be silent. Links to these amazing products and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter, or X as it's called these days. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop or if you just crave more content at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter or X, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.